This is episode 67 of Tummel Vision. We talk about the importance of tummeling to create open standards on the web. And? And why your standards website should have an edit button, not a feedback form. And we do this with our guest, Tantic Chalek of Microformats. I got the music in me. Hey, everybody, it's Heather Gold. I'm back. This is show 67 of Tunnel Vision. 67 shows of nonstop social engagement joy. Tumble Vision is um, a show about our human and tech selves intersecting. We have a salon-style podcast we do here every week about how we want to connect and create a world that really puts people at the center of our business, tech, and culture, and not the machines. And we explored different dimensions of tumbling with the most interesting people we can find creating this new network world. And what is tumbling, you ask? Well, it comes from an old Yiddish word, to tumble. If you saw Dirty Dancing, you saw tumblers in the Catskills. It means that you worked at a wedding or a place where people vacationed and you entertained, but you helped get people to dance at the wedding. You helped make it kind of noise, happiness. You got things going. So when you're trying to figure out how do you collaborate in a networked era where everything's networked and the command and control doesn't work anymore, we think the answer is to tumble. So I host the show, Heather Gold, with our wonderful friends, um, I don't know what you want to be called, uh, innovation business horse lover, Deb Schultz. That, that would be me. <laughs> From San Francisco and technologist, Kevin Marks. Hi there. And uh, I'm your, today? Oh, great. I'm your local comedian, performance artist, uh, social engagement uh, person, and are really happy to say our, our guest today is um, incredibly smart guy and technologist, Tontek Chelik, Selik, Chelik, right? Chelik, yes. Thanks, Heather. Um, infamous for being just at T on Twitter, among many other things he's infamous for. Just one letter. <laughs> kind of, he's got, he's got, you've got more nerd cred than anyone I've ever met, Tontek, I think. He's, to which he, he replies like Spock with silence. Good. <laughs> he's like, and there's nothing to do that. Heather, you've got a talent for making me speechless. <laughs> oh, thank you. I was just remembering the last time you were on a show of mine, we were talking about whether or not multitasking helps you with group sex. Or maybe it was group, does group sex help you with multitasking? Uh, <laughs> when I was doing continuous partial attention show at South by Southwest a few years ago. So we're going to um, have a larger conversation tonight about the thing that, I guess, Kevin, would you say you and Tontek are best known for being sort of standards guys? Yeah, I guess so. That's, that's a reasonable roundup, isn't it? Sure. I don't know. Does that, is, that, is that fair to you, Tontek? Uh, yeah. That's, uh, certainly, I think uh, Open Web Standards has dominated my, my work for the past like, uh, like 13 years or so across several companies and independent ventures and such. Um, that's and, been a common thread. And just uh, for people who aren't maybe technologists, what is an open web standard and why does it matter? So an open web standard is, well, let's, let's break it down. <laughs> it's open, which means that uh, anyone can read it and use it, and it's free of any sort of licensing requirements or anything like that. 
you know. And so for, just for a practical average everyday person who serves the web and sends email, how would they experience that as making their life different? Well, email works because of an open Internet standard. Uh, the fact that we can all use different email addresses and systems and they all talk to each other. The web works uh, and we all have different browsers and different servers because the HTML and HTTP are the open web standards uh, at the heart of the web. And so as the web has evolved, we, we've needed more standards for doing things like styling things to be pretty. And so like CSS helps us do that. Or exchanging data across our web pages. And that's one of the things that, my, that Kevin and I helped uh, create and develop called microformats. So we can talk more about microformats in a minute, but hopefully that gives people a little sense. It's a, it's kind of a big abstract thing, but in a way it's the standards are what may let things really connect and sort of let things translate so we can have some kind of shared experience. Right. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Like you, you can think of a web standard, like you know, we have the equivalent of like, say, electricity where we have standards uh, in, in the U.S. at least of 110 volts, you know, 60 hertz, uh, helps our appliances all work together no matter what uh, manufacturer they come from, and the plugs in the wall, right? Those and and they, they might be kind of invisible to most people because if they work, they don't really show up very much. You would only notice if the stuff didn't work maybe. That's right. Yes, I mean, but the, the, the successful success goal for a, an open standard is people don't realize they're using it. It becomes invisible. That's as long as you're you're saying, "Am I? Do I have to use this or that or the other?" Um, it hasn't really been solved yet. We're, we're at the point where it's just a natural part of the web, and you don't even notice it's there anymore. You don't even notice the URL starts with HTTP, and that implies there's a standard behind it. Um, that's a sign that, that the thing has become invisible and part of the fabric. And that's this sort of weird goal of standards design is to um, make people not realize they're using them because they're, they're a natural part of the world. Right. So there's sort of like the ultimate collaborative result. So when we start off the, the show, I'd like to go a little bit into um, some stories from the week, that things that have happened in the news that are interesting. And then we can go much deeper into your work, Tontek, and um, things that you think are really important that are going on right now. We've got, uh, well, I mean, I'd say this this uh, this week, the thing that certainly caught my attention is that, um, well, it's been sort of an interesting time for women. I don't know how many of these things have to do with tumbling connection, but I'm noticing them. And the one thing I think that's most connected to women is um, Bill Keller, the managing editor of the New York Times, executive editor, just resigned. And Jill Abramson has been named the first female executive editor of the New York Times today. Uh, not too long ago, she took about five months off explicitly to sort of get schooling in digital stuff before she uh, moved up to managing editor, and now she's executive editor. And Bill Keller, to the social media scene, is perhaps best known for his very recent tweet, hashtag, why Twitter makes you stupid, and his ensuing column attempting to talk about how our souls are being destroyed <laughs> because people won't really talk to each other anymore for real because they use Twitter. I don't know if there's a relationship between these two things. I think they planned on him retiring to column writing, although maybe we'll just get more columns like this from him now, Mr. Grumpy Old Man, <laughs> which Derek Pawazek applied, you know, Mr. Get Off My Lawn kind of thing. Um, totally. So I don't know what more there is to say other than it's kind of amazing that there's a woman running the New York Times, and Jane Lynch was just named the host of the Emmys today. Both of these things are kind of amazing to me. But... Um, I, I don't know, like, 
I, I thought Bill Keller came off even to his own world as looking kind of dumb when he did that. And that seemed to be a bit of a general turning point. I don't know if it's anything the rest of you guys paid attention to. You know, Heather, there's this, uh, there's this recent invention that's called the telephone. It actually lets you talk to people without having to see them in person. And I think right. it's going to completely destroy interpersonal. We don't spend time, Tontek, in the parlor anymore playing bridge together. Because I can call my sister all the way out by the farm. On the but, you can use your, but you can use your Ouija board. I, I think telephones are just going to make us stupid. You know, what, what, are, we, what are we thinking? It's going to destroy <laughs> relationships as we know it. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I think every, every, every technology you're going to get uh, some chicken litter, little, uh, littler uh, saying that, you know, X makes XYZ will make us stupid or will destroy our he was cite, He was citing contact, you know, the latest dystopian writers. There's a handful of them, including Jaron Lanier who, to me, hasn't had a whole lot of credit. But you guys are, are like, to me, have serious technology credibility. Is Jaron Lanier seen as really in a technologist of any repute <laughs> these days? Yeah, totally. He's still doing interesting research. But he's, he, he has become a bit of a, a curmudgeon about some of this stuff. Um, he has got some good points about some of the, the AI stuff that, that fits in with Eli Pariser's sort of filter bubble worldview that we talked about last week. Um, Yaron's, Yaron's thing is that um, there is a danger that because we're adaptable and computers aren't, rather than getting intelligent computers, we start adjusting our behavior to, to pretend the computers are intelligent um, and do stupid things to placate them. And his example is, is, is credit scoring, where um, in order to get a good credit score, what you have to do is take out a loan that you don't need and pay it off um, and do that a few times, then you get a good credit score. Um, and this is true however much money you have to begin with because that's, what, that, that's all the credit score, credit rating agencies uh, measure. Um, and the, that this is now expected practice, he says, is that we're ex- um, um, accepting stupid AI rather than, than um, trying to make AI smarter. So he, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of thread through that with, with, with Sherry Turkle and um, with um, Eli as well, saying we, we're, we're sort of accepting these, sort of, these weird programs as, as part of our world. I, I, I mean, as we know, we we do still need to get Sherry here. I'm I just don't think that's I don't I don't understand her saying that. I understand her as being a lot more um, disconnected from even the experience of social media. It doesn't seem like she experiences it much herself. But um, anyway, there's a whole little cottage industry of people sort of throwing up their hands and freaking out. Um, and yes. but you know, I I, I I take your point. They have, they have some good, good points to make. So uh, yourself. You know, well, it's not only that. It's it's as a result of the fact that we're going through these big seismic sort of social, cultural, emotional shifts. You're going to have people who are going to be, this rocks. And then you're going to have people who are like, this sucks. <laughs> it's just inevitable. I mean, you know, in the research I did for our recent talk, I, I was just shocked at how it's how rare it is to find something that's the middle of the road that's not so binary whether it be a book or an article it's 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 sort of the nature of you either jump on the bandwagon today or take you know, part of it is attention getting, but I actually think that that pe- that people just feel that way. They feel like this is helping my life or this is hurting, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of grounded in realityness around it. But I, I think, think there's you know, next, I think Dana Boyd seems pretty. Yeah, Dana's uh, very good about that. That's true. Very in the middle. She's written quite a lot about what's difficult about celebrity culture online for people. She's certainly no luddite about things. But what, what do we do? We, do you think, Deb, that 
that this change for Bill Keller has anything to do with that tweet? I like. Uh, I think it's probably like, a combination uh, of stuff. Here. I mean, because it looked like they planned since they were moving her right. up to managing editor. It looked planned that she was going to do this, and this is what happens. He's not leaving the Times. This is your your little treat at the end of your career that you get to write a column. Right, you get up so, and you get yeah, you get a column at the end of your career. So so, so he's he's taking out the. Um, it's not operational. Now that's that, that's what's going on there. Then he, he's he's going to be the resident um, web skeptic to be a fault. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, to me, you know, you brought up the issue. To me, I mean, obviously, we could we could you know wax in the direction of sort of women online in that role. Um, but what was interesting to me that I think got lost in the story, I didn't follow it at the same level that you did, was the fact that she did leave her her post for a couple of months to sort of focus on digital and operations I think as that's a, significant yeah as as a temporary move and to me when i looked at that i took that in a much broader context of how companies are now recognizing that career paths and what people need to do in jobs might not be this um linear thing that it used to be so so to me that i mean the, whether it coincided with Bill Keller, you know, put shoving his foot in his mouth or not was, was more about, they've identified this person. This person needs to understands this domain expertise of, of the brand that is the, you know, and I use that word consciously because the New York times is this, you know, well, gray lady, right. But she needs to sort of spend some time over here and, and then maybe move her over there, and it isn't going to be forever. So it, to me, it was kind of a very real-time, agile sort of way to look at maybe careers in a way. That's the thing that popped into my mind. I think it was more that they're grooming her to run the paper, and she better learn how to do digital stuff if she's going to run be. it now. Could be. But, I mean, I, I, I mean, again, if you take a step back, I kind of like – it's very rare that companies do that. Mm. Well, even when they're grooming, that they pro, that they consciously announce it and do it and make it public, and so mm-hmm. I hope it's a sign of more sort of understanding that we sort of weave a little bit more through roles in organizations of that that large. Do you think okay. that a woman will be inherently more tumbly in running the paper? Of course, that's a leading question. Of course, Heather, you know that I do. Yes, I do. I hope, but Catherine, I don't know. Catherine, but I don't know her well enough to know. Like this is Contact? a So that that was me. Sorry, was Catherine Graham the? the um, yeah, that's the no, no, no. This is the New York Times. This is Jill Abramson. Yeah, but yeah, he's. No, no, been... no. I'm just that's the, if you want a sort of historic example of a woman running a major newspaper, isn't isn't she the one? Yes, Washington Post. She's the publisher. She's the ultimate. I'd like to she think... She wasn't yeah. the editorial director, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but the publisher. You know, I'd like to think yes, but I also know that. Um, you know, um, I don't know her cliche wise and overgeneralized. Yes. I think that it is the nature of women who actually even succeed in management to be probably more tumbly than most because they have to bridge a lot of gaps. Um, so I, I would think yes, but I, I don't know her background and who she is that well. Um, I think it's a skill that's needed at the New York Times. So I hope she, I hope that's part of why they identified her. Without realizing that's why they identified her. Yeah, I, I think I'm just wondering if more mainstream people were upset with Keller from saying what he did, and if that's a sign of a change. I mean, I, it must be just that they, that she had to do any digital training at all. Um, so, other have we got other stories that people want to make sure we dig into before we get going into Kevin? You you had some key stuff. Well, yeah, it's pretty big news on, in fact, Larry Lessig's birthday, which it is today. Yes. 
Yes. Who we will definitely have to have on the show, uh, founder of Creative Commons, among other things. And YouTube has just announced that you can license your videos under Creative Commons. And they've added a remix tool to YouTube that reads the Creative Commons ones and, and, and outputs them. Um, with, so they're trying to build a, a, a remix space within YouTube, which, which, is, which is great. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I'm surprised it's taken this long to, to do it because um, they had a bunch of lawyers at, at, at Google who came from Creative Commons and vice versa. But it, it's good that they've, they've done this. I'm, I'm, I I'm think Google is focusing very hard on YouTube right now. Go ahead, Deb. Nope, nothing to say. I think that's great to see. It's also, you know, good to recognize that, that I guess Flickr videos have been something you can create a Commons license for a while, and I think Vimeo allows you to do that as well for years now. Mm-hmm. So nice that Google is finally uh, catching cool. up, yes. as it were. With but uh, is it is it weird that all these other places, Tontech, which are open and have Creative Commons, haven't been as big as YouTube, which wasn't? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think the, the YouTube grew big by being being very liberal about copyright um and then suddenly right. got effective after they got massively sued um and now they've you know and then that made them gun shy for a while and uh, you know i was surprised to see eric schmidt at the eg8 um saying it was his job to police copyright when clearly it isn't actually his job under law um but he's he's accepted that as part of the of the settlement in effect with verizon that they have to do the content id stuff um not Verizon, Viacom, sorry. Um, so that that was a bit interesting because, you know, actually one of the big things that makes um, the U.S. friendly to um, Internet companies in a way that other countries aren't is the safe harbor provision that says, if I'm hosting content for you, right. I'm not liable for that if I take it down um, when, when I get a copyright complaint against it and, and there's an appeal process. And there's, this, there's a set of rules around that, which means there isn't, consequential liability for, for somebody who's hosting something for somebody else. And that was what made these, these kinds of sites possible in the first place. Um, if you were able to file copyright damages against uh, YouTube or Flickr or Blogger or Twitter or anyone else who, who in, creates a publishing platform, it would have been very hard to get the, the, the public culture of the internet off the ground. So that bit of the copyright law, I think, is, is, is a vital underpinning of the NED. Um, and it was, I'm, I'm, I didn't hear anyone raise that at EG8 except Lessig. Um, I, I would have hoped that that um, Schmidt or um, Zuckerberg would have mentioned that too. And Heather, in answer to your question about uh, surprising about uh, YouTube's growth, you know, I think we can hypothesize a lot of things. But in the early days, uh, mm-hmm. YouTube did a couple of things which I think were essential and that we can all kind of learn from those of us building sites for the web. The first is that uh, their stuff just worked. For the most part, right? Like the videos played, uh, you could upload. Uh, and the second is that each video page, uh, right there on the right hand column, right hand side, was a link you could copy and paste trivially. A nice short link to the video that just worked, as well as the embed code to embed the video. Right. There to copy and paste. Yeah. And what surprises right. me is how few companies have, have copied that trivial user interface convention. Which, Every video hosting, major hosting company does. I mean, the ones that have survived, Vimeo and Blip, they have it. Yeah, they, they, did, it, they did it eventually. But, eventually. But, but it, not at first, right? YouTube grew and blew up because of, right. I, in my opinion, those two things. One, it just worked. And two, they made it trivial to share. And I, if you look at everyone else's, 
you'd have to click through a menu or click a share button, get a little pop-up, enter in some details. It's like all these steps because, you know, some product manager or some UI designer decided that they needed to be able to set the background color or some, or the width or height, you know, YouTube, when they launched that, they just said, no, it's simple. Here's a link. Here's the embed code. Pick which one of these you want, copy, paste, you're done. And that's something that gets lost, I think. on I I did a piece in 1999 called building a web business on copyright infringement, just, you know, before Napster sort of saying, here's what's going to happen. And one of the things I, I remember looking into was I talked to Mark Andreessen, it's a long time since I've talked to him, about the browser having a copy, view this page and copy this uh, right in the browser. Mm. Um, That the browser let you just take everything in the page and copy it. Like they actually put it in the, in the application itself. And he said, oh, yeah, we never really thought about it. <laughs> like the ramifications of it. So it sort of just happened, I think, very unthoughtful. But I think your point is interesting, Tontek, that now, and, you know, for YouTube, it's very much thought out. It's, and it's really, you're right. I think how trivial it is to do something is so key to, to something's growth. I mean, Twitter, it's so trivial just to get anything into it. It really helps. So yeah. so this kind of um, of of sense of ease. Is that at the heart of why you are focused on standards? And do you think that there can be standards set for social media? And what, I have lots of questions about it. Let's, let's start there. Uh, to answer the first part, I do think that simplicity is a key uh, to successful standards. Um, I, and ironically, that's something that I think that most folks that work on standards either forget it was, they get it right, they forget, or they just never understood. Because um, they're, they're very close to the problem set, and so they see the complexity of the problem set and want to express that, rather than being able to step back from it and say, well, what is the bit that people generally care about? It, it, that, that's the analogy to that, the YouTube sharing issue. It's like, how do we strip this down to the, to the simplest thing it can possibly be so people can understand it and use it, rather than how do we cope with every possible variation on a theme that, that could be part of this? Um, and so, that's... When you're focusing on that's interesting. When you focus on the the problem set, as you as you say, Kevin, um, and tell me, you know, I want to hear Deb your thoughts on this too. Is it? And maybe this happens in business as well. If you're focused just on the problem, is it always quite complex and chaotic, and and completely intellectual? And when you're when you're focusing on the answer, is it is it a mental process to come to the answer when you're coming to the simplistic standards, or is it a more emergent? fluid, I don't know, different kind of process for those things to emerge, or is it equally kind of thought through analytically? The, 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 the tricky, it's, it's fairly easy to make up something. It, and it's, a, it's the huge temptation if you're a programmer is to sit there and make something up and say, okay, I understand how to represent a human being. They have names and they have addresses and they have photographs and, and just sit there and make up something and, and use that. And you, you, know, you, you probably get the first five of those things right and in the, they're, they're obvious, but then you'll get carried away and start adding things that you think would be interesting because you're you, um, and not um, and not necessarily will matter to everyone else. And th- this stuff accretes over time. Um, and the hard thing is getting other people to agree with you over how to represent something and share it and move it between places. Um, so, um, big part of what we did with the microformat stuff. Um, and, and could you just quickly explain once again what microformats are? Okay, go Tantec. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
microformats are small additions to HTML to and ex- HTML is the the kind of basic code that makes web pages and right. HTML is the lingua franca of the web. It's what web servers speak and your browser understands to draw your web page basically. And microformats are small additions to HTML to express common concepts like people, events, organizations, reviews. Um, and they're designed to be um, use the, the text on the page that the humans would read um, and add some additional um, labels to that such that the computer can understand it too. So if we, we would recognize a name and address on the page because we're used to seeing the pattern of a name and address, at least in our local culture, um, but the computer wouldn't necessarily know how to, to make sense of that. Or sometimes it would, right? Some, some, some would. But there's some good guessing algorithms. There, there is some good guessing. That's true. But, but if we add a bit of extra markup around that to say this is the name and this is the address and this is the address of the, of the microformats dinner tonight and these are the names of the people who are going and express that as part of the, of the markup, then it's easier for um, that to be reused somewhere else and be connected together. So the, the point of microformats was to stop HTML just being um, something that you generate and never look at again, um, as, as, like printing something on paper um, and make it something that could be fed back into um, the rest of the, the web as well. And at least parts of our you know, initial work on that was when we were at Technorati and it was our day job to try and make sense of blog posts and encouraging people to add bits of extra structure to that made our job easier and made it better for them because by adding the structure to the, the posts, by adding the tags, by adding some of the, the um, markup for events and things, we could give better search results um, for them and make their posts make more sense. And that's, that's behind a lot of the motivations of these sort of published standards of, of, of that sort of class. So, Tontek, how would the average person see the results of microformats when they're on the web so the average person today sees microformats probably most commonly in uh, search results. So if you look at Google, if you Google for a restaurant um, such as, uh, what's the place we're having dinner? Gott's Roadside. Yes. Uh, you might see some results come up with little stars or ratings or an address, uh, that kind of thing. And right now, uh, Google is pulling all those out of uh, results from, say, Yelp, which uses uh, microformat to mark up the details of uh, location or a venue. And so when a user sees the result... So, I'm, gonna slow you, I'm gonna, sorry to slow you down a little bit because no uh, so, so uh, when I go to Google Maps and I try to find a venue, it takes something called microformats for Google Maps to display that? Uh, if you just go to Google, right? Okay. I mean, people search for things. They don't say... When people search for things, they just type it into a text box. They just type it to their search box. That's the common behavior. Like every... You know, every browser vendor has, and even sites have noticed this, right? That, like, people don't go to Facebook.com. They Google for Facebook.com and then click the link. So, similarly, they'll just Google something. Um, they won't even go to Google Maps. So, that's the first point. And then when you when you Google something like that, uh, hopefully some of those responses, some of those results you'll see have little stars on them. I think uh, Kevin's just verifying my, my test here. And... Those little yellow stars saying, you know, what's the average rating or number of reviews, the price range, those all come from microformats on those pages. Come from microformats because if there wasn't a micro, so that, so that it shows up the same all the time, otherwise. 
So if when you look at some of the other results, came in from you'll different just see a plain result where it's like, it'll say like guts roadside and have a little description, like a little text summary, right? The difference between the results that show you a text summary, just a text summary, and the results that show you a number of stars and a rating and all that is that the more styled or richer result, rich snippet as Google calls them, uh, is using microformats from Yelp's site. Or, or Open Spoon, or um, who else is showing it here? Yeah, a bunch of other, bunch of other sites. That so basically, do. Google is not smart enough by itself, and in fact, this is you know no no diss on them, but like it's very hard to write code to recognize. Hey, this is a review, and this is the rating, and all that automatically from just the English prose of a page. And so, just as web pages mark up, hey, this is a heading, or this is a paragraph. Uh, web pages also mark up, hey, this is a restaurant, this is a venue, this is a review, uh, this is the rating. And so Google detects that the same way it would detect headings and titles of pages and then uses that to display a better result. So the more site, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I totally get it. The, the, this is from my geek years. Yeah, yeah, I've actually been to one of their meetings. So a good way to – this is where people go, Deb, you're geekier than I thought. A good way to think about it is that the more sites and you know, databases and places that use a common language, the better we the, – the, the richer, to Tantic's point, the result will be, but the more the web works better for you. So, you know, go, the, yeah, what's really interesting is Google's – is Tantic's point that most people just go in and search on language. But, but – if you use something like a microformat or other open standards, what you really realize is you're not – it's really a better use case and better customer experience because if I'm going in to search for a restaurant, most likely the next step is I want to know, is it a good restaurant? What's the address of the restaurant? So there's sort of an understand. it is more better human behavior in a way if you have smart people developing the the richness of the data behind it because they have an understanding that there's context involved here. As opposed to, you know, a lot of, we've all become very trained that the Google search algorithm is the only way that search can work, right? Um, and, and I think, that, can we just pause there for one sec yeah. so we can go deeper into that? I think yeah. this is a big thing and it's similar yeah. to, we talked about with Eli last week. Um, so Tontek, I don't know if this is just an issue with the web and data. It may just be a, a massive life issue that people, all around technology in general, they're not aware of what is constructed, we don't know what is handed to us and what is made. Now, people are maybe a lot more conscious of how TV works or how PR works now. So the average person can, can guess when they see a politician talk, oh, they say this, but it's done for such and such a purpose. I have some idea of how that's manufactured. When they go online, it's just sort of handed to you. And the idea that you can or can't do something doesn't seem to be a choice. It seems to be reality. I, I don't know if that, that – oh, the three of you think that that's true, but that seems to me to be something we're coming up against – more and more in our conversations on this show. And I'm wondering how much the, the idea of notion of tumbling, which Tantec we see is a human, not a machine skill, but we want code in the, and the sites in the, the web to support that kind of human linking that machines can't do. What is it? Is it up to code or is it up to people to help make people aware of this? Like, why is it important for people to know? Or, or is it just a pipe dream? Is it only going to be nerds like us who could care? No, that, that you up, get it's that this stuff isn't just coming from the god of the web. It's just sort of a choice that we made. Well, it's uh, preferably it's it's uh, both from right. humans and machines. 
And I think that's that's essential. And sometimes it's easy for uh, folks, uh, technologists or data scientists and such, to to lose sight of the fact that the web really is about communication. And it's it's all of us that work on the web have a responsibility to to make that communication and the methods of both not just reading the web but writing to the web uh, accessible to as broad an audience as possible, which means, you know, I remember in the original dot-com bubble, they, there was a saying, it was sort of like every barista was learning HTML, right? <laughs> right. Um, because it was easy. It was accessible. You could learn HTML in an afternoon. You could learn to write it. And that was one of our goals for microformats as well, is to make it as easy as learning HTML. Just copy and paste some code. And, is and it? You're, and you're up and running. Well, I should. I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I think that's certainly been one of our uh, design goals and priorities because uh, HTML was not the first version of hypertext. There's many versions of hypertext technologies before it. It was the first version that was accessible. That you just even if you were a, you know a writer, you didn't have to be a technologist. You looked at the tags, you looked at view source, you're like, oh, I can kind of sort of do that. Copy yeah, paste. I'm an example of that. I would never you know, think of myself as a coder, but I could do HTML. And so that is one of the essential... I, I'm similar. I remember Justin Hall. If you watch Doug, Doug Block made a movie about it. Early on, Justin Hall was sort of like this Johnny Appleseed. Right. Back when he was in college and had crazy hair that looked like Medusa. Uh, Justin is at BUD, I think, on Twitter. He's just a brilliant guy. And he was trying to convince everyone in the world he could find to make web pages. He thought it was just the most, you know, revolutionary thing. <laughs> Even other people are like, "What are you talking about?" So, so Tontec, these these microformats or these open standards that already do work, but CSS about stuff or HTTP or the microformats, which I'm still a little bit. All I'm personally getting is more information on pages is kind of coming through microformats. It's it's for the not just delivering a web page, but the stuff within a page. That's that's my as far as I'm getting to, in terms of understanding it. How can this stuff work with social media? Is there a, a place for open standards with what we're calling social media now? I'm not even sure what you mean by social media. Let's start with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a buzzword. What does that term mean to you? On the average person. It's, it's a meaningless term. Well, most people would say, having just spoken at a conference, I mean, I, all the major nonprofits and governmental organizations in Australia – um, to them, it means LinkedIn, Facebook. It's a bunch of little chiclet badges that they're used to having on a web page. Uh, so it means stuff that they can share easily, Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, maybe Flickr, where stuff gets shared between people. That's what they think it is. So they're badges? like. Well, I'm just saying those are representations. In a way, they're they're sort of like the HTML of the web now. They're the most accessible part of the web to people. I can post something on a Facebook page and share that with someone. I didn't have to. It was simple. It was, as you put it, how do you say that about YouTube with the little links they put up? They made it. They made it. You get a great word for it. So here's a question though: Why is it any different than 1998 and Blogger? You know, and to my in my opinion, that's what you just described is you know we haven't gotten anywhere in 12 years, 13 years. What, are you, what does that mean to you? We haven't gotten anywhere. Social media is just a new, new term for blogging. There's no difference, right? There's just no more difference. You really there's... think there's no difference? It's just, isn't it faster and flowier and more in real no, it's time? Just, it's just the buzzword du jour, right? I mean, 
we were at Technorati and, uh, you know, with Peter Hirschberg and such and invented the term, uh, was it conversational media? Conversational yes. marketing. Conversational marketing. Right. Conversational media, social media. Mm-hmm. I'm basically like, I mean, I'm going to be a bit cynical here, but some, to some degree, these are just new names for the same thing. Um, and because people put more attention to names than they do to uh, what something's function is, that by just dropping a new name on it, you can make it sound shiny and new, and that's something that you need to pay a consultant to do for you. But no, I actually think that if you're talking about publishing to the web, you're talking about publishing to the web. You know, If you're talking about sharing something on a site, you're talking about publishing to that site. It's uh, something that made it even easier for people to publish to the web. Right. But the, 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 I agree. I agree, but I sort of don't agree with Tantic. Go ahead, Kevin. Sorry, so I, I don't know that do either. Go, yeah, Kevin. One of the things that's different now is that a lot of these sites are recreating things that we used to do with blogs in in public across different sites and making them that site only. Um, so if you look at the way um, Tumblr works, you can you can repost um, things within Tumblr and share it within Tumblr, um, and it it stacks stuff up, but it doesn't bridge across to other sites as well. You can bring stuff in, you can't take it out as easily. Did LiveJournal do the same thing? LiveJournal, yeah. Um, if you yeah. look at if you look at um, you know Twitter, you can retweet stuff, but to to move it in and out of Twitter is a bit of extra work. You know, to to make sure you have your own copy of it, that there's a bunch of extra stuff you have to do. Um, and if you want to make it work on multiple sites, you end up having to um, write code against each site's API, do a bunch of extra work to make that stuff work. Um, so there is a there is a difference in that in at the time we were building blogging stuff, there was some agreement between different hosting sites on the specs they were using for how to describe things, whether that was in feed formats or whether that was in some of the microformat stuff that that we were advocating there and is, is still being used there, um, and. But there is there is there is a tendency now to say, oh, there's there's a Twitter thing, there's a Facebook thing, there's a Tumblr thing, um, and there, um, and less attempt to sort of see the commonality between them. I suppose that's kind of what you were saying in, in one respect as well. Yeah, one thing that I just want to jump in here, and we've got lots of folks in the chat room who really want to, apropos of microformats, talk schema. But I just wanted to say that I think. Tantic and Heather are probably in violent agreement, though it sounds not. From a technology and feature perspective, that's what you said, Tantic. You're right. We're still publishing to the web. The difference yes, is... is tumbling. It, Watch her tumble. Right. I am. <laughs> um, you know, we're still publishing to the web. The difference is, though, that more people are now using these tools, which automatically changes its character its nature, and it is easier to use. So technologically, I completely agree. Never before have so many people done so little with so much. You know, it's sort of we haven't changed that much in 15 years, you could argue. But because it's more in the mass culture, there's it, it is having a different impact, number one. It is hap- you know, people are blogging quicker. That it, it might not be changing from a technology standpoint, but we're using it more. And as more and more people get involved, I think you'll find more people questioning filters and and saying why aren't the tools better and et cetera, et cetera. So, so from a technology standpoint, yes, it's we're still publishing to a public space, and all that's happening is iterative things that are a little bit better. There hasn't been a major leap, but it's taken that long. Human nature doesn't work as quickly as code, right? It takes takes people a while to sort of that aren't the early adopters to jump on this bandwagon, you know. And that that's the thing that I think is the big change. The human way it's being used is different. People, exactly. especially given that Twitter was initially created to show you where, what are you doing now, where are you, it came from an IM, a status update. 
So we, and also the way we're using it just feels different to me. But anyway, let's let's. Right. Do you guys know that the original playing. version of Blogger did not have a title field? It just had the post field. Okay. Right. Ev's actually talked about this and how mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting that Twitter in many ways is a return to the earlier like design. Yes. Okay. You know, That's why I they called it, it microblogging originally, right? It, you know, Yuri Engstrom on our show, and we have to have him back where we have good audio because he's such an amazing guy to talk to, talked about basically he felt like people are building – people who build stuff build the same thing over and over. And I'm starting to, to <laughs> get that and agree with it in the way that – I always knew that of artists, like people have a, a certain thing not they're trying to untie and you can see it and play or movie after movie. And he was – his example was, was Dennis uh, with Foursquare, you know, and and – um, dodgeball before it and the other things he was doing. He said, look, this guy spent 10 years trying to understand sort of location, some of these things. He's coming at it with a, with a very deep understanding. He'd probably look at, um, at Ditto as a lighter iteration of what was Jaiku before. And I have to say Rob Lord comes to mind as someone who I've known since very early web, mid-90s, has been working on how to get music online. And every time the web sort of grows, he kind of tries to build a bigger wrapper and a new kind of uh, disruptive way of dis- of accessing music. And I, is that true with what you guys do, with, first of all, with standards? And now we're at the stage of the web, the next perhaps 2.0 or whatever we're going to call it. We don't really like any of the names. Do you feel like uh, standards have to play, you know, play a different role? And how does, you know, schema play into that? So, well, so the, let's back that up a bit. So this, the standards play a role in making it possible to do something that's, that's outside the confines of one site. Um, and the different sites adopt standards to a different degree. Um, so what we see is that, you know, there are some standards that have been relatively uncontroversial and, and um, everyone seems to have picked up on them. The the XFN stuff that was probably the first microformat that, um, Tantic proposed, which is how you link between different sites on the web and express relationships, and the two key ones being Relic was me, this is me somewhere else, um, and Relic was um, friend and a set, another set around those saying this is a Wait, friend. Whoa, whoa, Kevin, Rel yeah. equal? Are you saying so, Rel equals? Yes. When you make a link between, can you explain uh, that to, in so, in English to me? So when you make a link between two sites in HTML. You say a href equals URL of this site, and then you put the name of the link and you do close a. Yeah? I'm not saying yeah. we angle and things, but um, you can put other attributes inside that a piece to, to give right. information about what kind of link it is. And some of them that are defined are what language it might be in. Um, and there are some, um, and rel means relationship. What is this relationship between these two pages? Um, and what XFN did. Um, was define some relationships to represent people so that when you're linking between pages that represent people, you can say, this other page is also me, this page is my friend, and, and so on. Coworker, colleague. So, so and, and let me ask, let me ask a question. So if you can... These values were actually based on researching existing blogger behaviors. So we, we noticed that bloggers were linking to each other on their blog roles by name. And so people were already engaged in this behavior, and, and they, they would even say, here are my friends, here are my coworkers, maybe sometimes they link to family. So all we did was add a tiny bit of markup to people's existing behavior. And that's that, I want to just make that point because mm. building on existing behavior is essential. 
Yes. But bear in mind, the behavior you're building on is based on how people operate within confines of the web, first of all. And second question I have is, since you're, you're marking off human attributes, is there a way in which the web could show these relationships, say, the way someone refers to a social graph on Facebook as here's me and here's my links. I can imagine sort of a little network map of me and all the people I know. Is there a way in which these standards could have these sorts of descriptions so I didn't have to go to a one site, now it's called Facebook, to see them, I could see them everywhere I would go on the web. Is there a way that this could do this? The goal, yes. In fact, it already does that. And and Google's even built an API to access that. The web is the biggest social graph that we have right now. Not Facebook, not Twitter. Exactly. Not and yours. why is this not understood by, and how, how can we visualize it more on the, in the web? How could I, can you see that as you go across the web? Well, it's easier as a developer to build a single site and make everyone go to your one site and use your one site. It's much Are you just saying that Zuckerberg isn't like that smart in making stuff? No, I think the key thing here is that uh, if you want to build something, you build it quickly and get it moving, right? And, you know, that's the first thing you do is you build a site that uses everything that brings everyone to your own site. It's much harder to build a decentralized system. Um, you know, email is the common example used here, right? We had it used to be that people on AOL could only email people on AOL, but now any of us using Gmail or Yahoo or Hotmail can email AOL or each other because of open standards. Because of open standards, because email is already decentralized, and essentially the same thing is going to happen to the social graph. It seems logical that it would happen. So how will that happen and why? And what is this thing called schema and does it have anything to do with it? Okay, so should we we talk about what schema is, the announcement of schema at all, what what that is today? Well, let me ask the first part of the question, which is that uh, the social graph problem is a much harder problem than email. And it's happening. It's happening slowly but surely. Uh, Open standards are something that happens slowly. Right. And if you take a look at some of the work done by folks like Identica, StatusNet, uh, and in the larger sort of indie web movement, it's all about making it so that you can own your profile on your own site and post from there and communicate with other people from your own site rather than having to go to some centralized site to do it. So that is happening, and for anyone that wants to help make that happen or is building it themselves, uh, they should check out Indie Web Camp. It's all one word. Um, but... It's a bit of a leap to go from there to to schema because, as far as I can tell, that has nothing to do with social graph or social media or anything like that. So, you know, I don't want to do like a forced connection there. I'll just acknowledge that the two are kind of independent. Okay, so what is schema? S-C-H-E-M-A dot org. Excellent question. It's a buzzword to begin with. Okay, but let's explain it a little bit deeper than that because there are people in the chat room who think it just killed microformats. So I'm purposely being a little pokey here to hear you guys explain what it is and what so, it's not. So, well, in the, the idea of a schema, schema is a technical term for um, how you describe a database, the, the list of fields that make up a database. Um, and what schema.org is, is a website that was... Um, put up today, or I suppose it was, the bits of it were there before today, relaunched today um, by um, Google and Bing, um, the, the search bits of Google and the search bits of Microsoft. Um, and they said Yahoo as well, but given that Yahoo is running Bing, I'm not quite sure 
how that counts as the three companies. Um, and yeah, does, does Bing and Yahoo count as two companies or one? As a search engine. Good question. Anyway. Hmm. Um, ponder that. Ponder that for a bit. So, Or maybe it's an oligop- oligopoly. Anyway, anyway the, the, the point is they, they've said um, previously they've been using microformats um, to, to make sense of the web, to pull in um, and RDFA. addresses and Let's recipes and RDFA and, uh, microdata. and microdata. They've been using three sets of, of markup for this. Um, they've, they've been making... Okay, slow down, slow down. Kevin, you just referred to a bunch of stuff. I have no idea what any of that is. Okay. And actually, that's a big part of the problem. Yes. Is that... Well, do non-geeks need to know what markup languages are being used there? <laughs> of course of course they should. But when it's announced and described with jargon, you think non-geeks are going to be able to access it and use it? Well, I, 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 I like saying RSS. I'm kidding. I, this is a major problem in, right. in geek land to begin with. So we're in violent agreement. Yes. I think there's an element of tribalism that happens actually among geek culture where it's like, oh, if we use all our fancy words, then we sound all cool and we get to exclude people. Right. Um, and it's re- like this is not just geek culture. It's, it happens in academia. It happens in yeah. every subculture. But standards are not about tribalism. And that's something that I think almost every standards organization and effort like forgets. Standards are about being as widespread, at least open standards, and accessible as you can be. So the fact that we can't even talk about schema without like diving into all of these jargon terms, um, that should be a clue that there's something wrong there. That's completely – that's beautifully put. So, so what, they've, what they've said is we, we declare – that we will support these kinds of structured data in our search engine, and here they are. Take them or leave them. You guys all know what structured data is, right? Yeah. No. No. Yeah. See, this is my point, right? No matter how you try and talk about it, we're going to end up like. Uh, good luck, Kevin. I will, because... I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah. We managed to get them to understand microformats. I can just. I can. Def- I bet I could translate structured data. Probably so, not. Uh, in a way I, I just. I just really want it pulled apart deeply, Tony. Because uh, oh God, Tony. Why did I call you Tony? I'm mixing Tontek up with Tony. <laughs> Tony Comstock is a is part of our crew here in the in the chat room and um, he's saying great stuff and he's my mind. So so I just think it's good to really pull it apart because it's hard to I don't want to make an assumption. I, I'm not 100 percent clear, but I'm sure other people who are listening aren't for sure. Right. It's so critical to pull it apart. I don't think it's just a want. We someone yeah. needs to do it. No I guess one's that doing it's it. It's frustrating for you, Tontek, but in a way, and we haven't even gotten to the key how formats are are, are kind of tumbling. That's what we're trying to do in translating this stuff, because otherwise okay, so you don't have a link. I'll give you, a, yeah. I'll give you a, a, tech, a tech dump for a bit, um, and then we can go back to the reason I think the scheme will have problems, which is that it is defined as a tech thing, not as a social thing. So the tech dump is there's a bunch of different ways of expressing extra meaning in the HTML page because HTML is very flexible. Um, microformance is one of those that tries to keep it as close to an ordinary HTML as possible, so it's straightforward for people to understand HTML. Um, there are various other attempts to do something similar. There is what's called um, RDFA. And now, RDF is a way of expressing things in terms of syllogisms. Which what's is, a syllogism? A syllogism is like... Um, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So RDF is a way of expressing um, things like that that sound like 
Lewis Carroll logic puzzles um, in markup. Um, and Clay Shirky wrote a devastating piece saying, well, that's wonderful, but what's that good for? Um, and that's, that's part, of the, the part of the problem with IDF is that it appeals to people who like um, um, parsing those things, and that's a very small subset of people, and actually trying to re, re-express the universe in those terms is only appealing to people who, who read the other six books Lewis Carroll wrote that weren't Alice in Wonderland. Um, I really prefer also Cory Doctorow's Metacrap. <laughs> Metacrap, is, that's not a good essay on this, yes. So the, the point is that there, there are ways of expressing this. Um, and the thing is, I'm not saying that, that, that syllogisms um, are completely useless, but for the people who like them, they can who like them enough, they can transform the other formats into those. So there's, there's a sort of deep debate about this is the only true way to do it. Um, and because Tim Berners-Lee backed it originally, it got a lot of sort of extra impetus and a lot of people flocked to it and made it even more academic um, and, and less, less practical. Um, the, the, the other one that was mentioned was microdata. Now, microdata is a part of the HTML. Let's, let's make a stop for one second, Kevin, because you're kind of on a roll. But I have to tell you, I still don't know what structured data is. Yeah, this, this, I think I win this round. <laughs> you win well. <laughs> No, no, that was my point. If you, if you can't explain to Heather, you don't win. So structured data is having... having... No, my point is that you couldn't explain it. <laughs> well, I can't explain it. It's interrupting. Okay, um, Tontek, Tontek, you get 140 characters. Give it to me. <laughs> I don't know about 140 characters. Heather... All uh, right, 280. When you're, when you're publishing your website, right, you publish different things as headings and paragraphs, right? Maybe an image here and there. Yeah? Yep. Those yep. are all different tags, right? Yep. It's like metadata that says, here's where to put this crap. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Or it, it just sort of divides up content according to what, what you're saying it, it really is, right? Right. So there's no tags for saying this is a person or this is an event. Not in HTML. Thus, you came up with microformats. Bingo. So can I make a very simplistic metaphor add in here? For people who've never coded, never written a thing, there's a reason you use Microsoft Word versus Microsoft Excel. A paragraph in Word is unstructured data. Cells in Microsoft Excel is structured data data. Not at the level you're talking about, Tantic, but I'm just trying to be really simple. You either have a morass of words that sort of fit into a paragraph, or you have data that fits into something that you've defined into columns. This is all database stuff. Without the latter, you can't sort and find things on the web and identify them as things and objects more than just text. Even How's in that? Word, though, you've also got styles where people select right. head and yeah. choose heading style. But, 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 but let's not – I, I almost yeah. said a text but, thing, but, but a text yeah, box that's, that's, versus – That's the point of structure. Hey, you guys, we only have so much time and we really have to get into schema. But I think we're much clearer <laughs> on structured data. Okay. And in a way, all these conversations we're having about what are microformats, which seem to me to be closer to people, which is the tumbling focus – um, we're trying to have some way that people get to be identified in the web and show up and can be sorted to some degree is what I'm getting from this. Um, so their kind of role is to help everything work together. So what is schema, Tontek, and why do we need to, why, what do I need care about it? Like why does it matter? Well, let's, let's see if I can put it in a community, uh, 
description. So microformats.org was launched as a community by Kevin, myself, and several other co-founders back in 2005, coming up on the six-year anniversary, June 20th. And we made it open, made it so that people could talk about how to express data, how to, how to communicate information in their HTML simply and easily, as accessibly as possible. And through that, we've come up with a bunch of different vocabularies. I can use that word, right? Vocabulary? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is sort of like, vocabulary is like the easier to understand word that really people, when they say schema, they usually mean vocabulary. Um, but if you say schema, it makes you sound all technical and precise, and, and therefore you should take it more seriously. Uh, also, therefore, you're going to keep these other people from being part of your little world because they have no idea. They checked out going, I don't know what you're right. talking about. Right. That's exactly right. And over the years, there's been a number of different efforts at, at saying, oh, microformats, those things are too simple or too dumb or, or they just won't work. And so, for example, one of them was called structured blogging. Any of you remember that? No. Structured blogging? Not at all? Do you remember that, Debs? No, I don't. Yeah. I, that's, that's just wrong that I don't. When was there structured blogging? Well, if you, I think if you Google for it, you might be able to find a few references still. But that was another okay. effort that uh, got together, a bunch of companies saying, hey, here's a bunch of vocabularies. We're going we're gonna to propose these vocabularies to define what the web's going to look like with data. Oh, yeah. And, it, and we're going to do it much more cleanly with XML and, you know, insert te- techno uh, jargon buzzword of the, of the jour here. And turns out they didn't reach that many people, and it kind of died. So uh, RDFA has similarly attempted to do that, but more in a style fitting um, with the, the vision of the semantic web. And it's had some success. Uh, you know, you can sort of measure that for yourself. And now there's microdata, which is another way of doing it. Now, what Google's decided uh, with Microsoft, apparently, with, with schema.org, is that, well, there's not enough development, you know, or something happening with microformats. We're going to do it this other way instead. And if you, if you just look at the two sites from sort of a top-level what's going on perspective, um, there's, no, there's no community around schema.org. Uh, there's, no, there's a mailing list they just announced. You know, there's a few people, I think, on it right now. But the way that you make standards work is not through fiat, but rather through community. And, and that is, I think, an important distinction that, that you know, I think is one of the reasons why this, this show is Slow down and say that again. The way, what did you, you hear there, Deb? The way you make a difference is not through the, the... The way you make standards work is not through fiat, but through community. Why? Because standards are about agreement across as many people as possible. And if a dictator comes along and says, this is the way it's going to be, people, you know. According to Derek Pawczyk, it's not possible to own community. It's not alienable. You can only serve it. I think I just like to always credit him for that that truism. Um, I think that's right. And it always confounds the crap out of, I don't know, everyone I give talks to who are trying to have that happen on their site or with their organization. Right. Because they want the comfort of feeling like they, quote, unquote, own something when, you know, think you, it's not so ownable. Well, this is, this is the thing. You can't, the way you um, do this is to give up the idea of ownership um, and, say, and say, okay, we can't, we shouldn't talk about ownership. We can talk about control. 
And then what you do is you set up the system so that everyone has control. Um, and if you look at the successful open standards stuff, if you look at open source and if you look at the open specifications models, um, they are built in such a way that anyone can take that code, do what they like with it, change it, um, and send you back the changes if they want to or not. And, the, and, and by giving everyone control, it means that you can gather the thought processes from lots of those people and bring it back. Now, this is not to say that happens on its own. You have to be spend some time sitting there doing the gathering, which is one of the things that Tantic has devoted a lot of time to with, with the microformats.org community, is doing that gathering back of ideas and discussions and so, bringing people into the conversation. So, Kevin, would you say Tantic is, is tumbling that community? Very much so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, if the, 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 so one of the things we, when we started out the microformats thing, we were a bit like the, the scheme of law guys. We said, we have this problem. We have, we think we have the answers to it. Um, um, here, here's, here's our best guess. But the difference is we stuck it up on a wiki and said, please tell us if you think we've got it right or wrong. Please come and edit it with us. Please help us make, make this better. And um, whereas what, if you look at what schema.org says, they say, um, we've defined this, um, you can extend it in this way that doesn't look anything like the way we're extending it. Um, and if you're a large publisher or consumer, we might let you join in the conversation later. Um, and that is that. if you want a key difference between the two processes, that is it. Ours is a wiki. Theirs is a closed group that they decide who gets to um, legislate. Um, and then the reason that microformats works is that there's a process defined about that around that on how you go from just making shit up to finding agreement with other people and 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 you know discovering the commonalities, researching existing behavior. Yes, and, and then, important important things like that. I mean, that's um, well. There's also, I mean, attitudinally, right? It, there's you can say you're creating a standard, but what you're really trying. I, I don't know the guy, the schema guys, but by doing something closed, sometimes when people say they're doing standards, what they're really trying to do is they want other people to jump onto what they've created. Mm-hmm. That's okay, very so, different so than... Deb, I think that's critical, what you're saying, and that's a key yeah. tumbling thing and the difference between yes. presentational experience and conversational experience, which is one is a data transfer thing where you say you know something, here's expertise, here's accept me as authority. The other is, and this is the heart of what we mean by tumbling, is to hold a question or an inquiry or problem and to tend to it, almost like a gardener, to so you don't know the answer, but you're going to kind of tend to everyone going into that inquiry together, which is inherently much more engaging than, hey, everybody, do the thing I want. Sony, when I was working in music stuff at Apple, their whole business model, at least in the music area, was built on. We've got these systems, whether it's the CD, and you're all going to use it. Now you're all going to use the enhanced CD. It's been a hard time keeping that going. So I, th- I think that that's pretty interesting. So Tontech does what's happening with schema.org, here's the question, everybody at least who's, who's here in Jar wants to know, does it end? Oh. Oh, I think we just lost Heather. <laughs> does it end? Pop. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> and, and Heather's response to everyone in the chat room was crap. It's perfect timing. She'll get, she'll get back on in a sec. Um, <laughs> so, so does schema.org end microformats? I assume where she was going with that. And the, right. the answer is... I'd be very surprised. So when was the last time that two companies announcing something like two know, big companies, two big companies announcing something top down was the end of a bottom up community that's been established for years. Do, 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 do. Not that I can think of. Not that. I, so why let, let's get into the, so, never mind like the technical details. We could jump right. into all that, yeah. but 
but I mean, from, I from, communication from a community perspective, yes. right? Yes. Two large companies getting together, agreeing on something and saying, this is the way it's going to be. Um, actually, it sounds kind of like anti-competitive to me, anti-trustworthy. Well, it's, right? it sounds... Maybe we should talk to our lawyers first. It's, it sounds like, <laughs> to me, if you want an example, it sounds like what happened with the Communications Act, where suddenly we've got a choice between AT&T and Comcast to get our internet connection and that's it, and all the little ISPs disappeared. If you, that, that's an example. But there they um, had a legis- legislative interpretation backing that up. So the key, the key difference is that... Microformats, as I say, Microformats is a wiki. Schema is a defined website. That's if you if you want to look at it in those terms, that's the way to do it. And then um, there is a process defined for microformats on how to change them, how to add new ones, how to do this. Um, and the process starts with doing research and looking what's already been done. The key part of of, of this and is of this empirical standard stuff um, is rather than saying we we omnicompetent technologists can sit here and define the world for you and you should all fall into line. Um, it's, it's starting off more humble than that and saying, let's go and look at what people have been doing. Um, there's this wonderful thing called the web that is full of examples of people trying to express themselves um, and trying to express these very things that we're trying to model. Let's use that as the basis of what we're doing. And document our research publicly. And document where that comes from. Um, and then bring that into the into the process going forward. So when someone says, "Well, where did you get that from?" We can say, "Well, we found it in these three places." You know, the, the reviews. We we looked at the, the sites that have lots of reviews in and found that they all have um, the name of the thing being reviewed, a star rating, and the author of the review. And some of them have these other three things. Um, so we agreed that everything has to have those for it to be a review. Um, and then if you want other things, here's how to express the ones that we found that several people have, uh, came up with already. Um, and then when someone who's in that field says, okay, let's have a look at your standard. Does it make any sense? They look at it and they go, well, this maps fairly closely to what I was doing anyway. That's good. Whereas if you start with a sort of top-down design and say, what were all the possible things that could be in a review – um, you start out with a sort of, um, you know, a strange model of, of how, how the world might work. Yeah, to me, it's really about, it starts from an attitude, which is, I think, what we were getting at when um, Heather dropped. And the attitude is, do I see that when I'm creating standards, I need to look at my users in whatever shape that is? And I don't mean my only my fellow I mean, what you guys are also bringing to light is you're not only going to look at your fellow developers and coders, but let's look at the real use cases and what's out there already in the universe and bring that in and share that publicly so that we can actually create something that is standardized, that is inclusive. And you need to do all that to make a standard. If you come at something by – you look at a problem by saying we need to solve this problem for us and you guys need to come in and agree or not, you've automatically set up a very different framing to begin with. And the only way you can do the former, which is what Microformats does, is to sort of let go of that control and tumble your community and realize you don't have all the answers. Right? Yes. Am I – You've been putting it very well. Yes, that's a great way. To, yeah, I mean, even even just today earlier, I I, I saw someone uh, fix some fix some uh, typos and mistakes on the microformats wiki who I'd never seen participate before, and that's because it's on a wiki. So, I think that's a that's a good measure to to end on devs. That uh, you know, if your if your standard site has an edit button, that's a, that's a good sign of, the, of it being more open. 
That's uh-huh. a great. That's a great way of saying it. But if it's if it's got like a oh here's a feedback form, maybe you can send us some feedback that goes into a black hole. I don't know. Good luck. With I like that. that. I like that. And and it's to us, it's an obvious distinction. To some people, it's a subtle. And I think it really comes from where you're coming at from the beginning of whatever project. And and the reason I'm harping on this is this is more than just around standards. This has to do with anything that we want or think we can manipulate or do stuff with, right? That people, sometimes people, groups, businesses, tribes think they're being inclusive, but they don't really realize that they're not. I mean, I try to give some people the benefit of the doubt, right? That, that this is really a very much different way of being, you know, when people talk about two directional conversations or whatever, at, but but it's just so much more glaring when you're talking about standards, <laughs> right? By pure definition, we're trying to create a standard we can all use, but you guys have to follow my way, right? It just right. makes no sense. Right. That's, yeah. that's real well put, Debs. I like that edit button versus feedback form. Because, again, people who are putting up feedback forms probably often think that they're going to – and then they wonder why no one gives them feedback. That's the other thing. Yes. Because yeah. it's about you, not about me. You being the the site that is asking for the feedback form. Right. And that therein lies the rub, as they say. Right. I'm so sorry that we haven't been able to. Uh, Heather, are you back on? Have we been able to get Heather back on? Because I know she would want to say goodbye to you guys. But far be it from us to um, keep you guys longer <laughs> than, you know, you have to host your dinner. You can't show up late to your own we dinner. To head over. Yeah. So I will just wrap up and say, Tantik, thanks for joining us. We definitely need to have you back again. I hope you understand why we sort of go so deep in unpacking the techie words. I, it, I sympathize, and thank you for having me, Debs. Uh, anytime, dude. Anytime. Keep fighting the good fight, as they say. And, Kev, we will talk next week. And on that note, I am going to just end up by saying – Sadly, we've lost Heather yet again, but if you are interested in learning more about Tumble Vision or Tumbling, please uh, check out our website at TumbleVision.tv, spelled T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N.tv. You can check out our archived episodes with all our amazing guests. You can find out how to listen and, most importantly, participate, if you can, with us live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern because half of our really deep, fun conversations and smart folks are in our chat room. And next week's guest is TBA, and Tumble Vision is produced in Baltimore, Maryland by Andrew Hazlett of thenewmodern.net. And with that... I am here to say, Tumble Vision 67, Tumble Out. <laughs>